Please take your copy of God's Word and turn to Colossians chapter 3. We'll read verses 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Again, um, it's a privilege to, to once again preach the word of our living God, sharper than to any two-edged sword. It does a work in us, a real work in us. It's not just for the benefit of our mind, but it's the benefit of our eternal soul. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, Lord, we we cannot thank you enough. We cannot worship you enough. We cannot meditate on you enough for your kindness and your grace towards us. Father, at this time, we ask for you to speak to us clearly through your word. Lord, build us up in the image of Christ and make us useful for your glorious plan. God, I pray that it is our desire to see Christ to feel Christ, and to hear Christ this morning. Increase our faith through the preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, do a good work in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, there's this unverified story. It's a really interesting story about um, a 20th century Christian author named G.K. Chesterton. Uh, the London Times, the, the city where he lived, uh, put this question out to famous authors in his area, asking for a response, and the question was this, what is wrong with the world today? G.K. Chesterton, known for his wit and his depth of knowledge and insight, chose to take up the challenge of that question and wrote a letter in response simply with two words. He wrote, dear sirs, those aren't the two words, but dear sirs, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. This is a man who understood the impact that his sin has on the world. I don't believe Chesterton was trying to be cute or funny or even lazy with a two-word response. I don't think he was trying to be cliche either. I think he understood that the longer that we deny our position and we postpone our self-evaluation of our sin, then we continue 
in the swamp of our sinfulness. Our sin causing us to hurt ourselves, destroying our community, and ultimately offending our Creator. And this morning, I want to pose a similar question to you all. What is wrong with the church today? The answer, beloved, (laughs) as you may be guessing, what is wrong with the church today is you. Me. I am what is wrong with the church today. I don't say this out of bitterness toward anyone in particular. I don't say this out of sense of self-loathing. I say this because the unity of the saints which Christ has died for is not as healthy as it should be and as I see it in his word. And the problem lies not with our Savior, but with us. And what would the church look like if we were to put off the old self and put on the new man as Paul challenges us to? And that is one of the main points of this letter. He is saying to the Colossian church, if you are unified in Christ, if you have union with Jesus Christ, then live out in the truth of that unity. And that is the point of our sermon this morning. If you are a Christian, then live as the body of Christ. If you are a Christian, then live as the body of Christ. Last week, we talked about the major shift in the book of Colossians, where Paul goes from addressing the false teaching that the church was struggling with and goes into the depth of the reality of the Christian's union with Christ. Our union with Christ means that we are hidden with Christ, chapter 3, verse 3, that we are raised with Christ to the heavenly throne room temple of God, chapter 3, verse 1, revealing that the fullness of God, the fullness of heaven, is ours right now when we are unified in Christ. Therefore, there is no better way to experience heaven and God fully while we're on earth than to be unified with Christ spiritually now. And along with the power that this new heavenly throne room temple citizenship comes, it comes with the power to live as Christ on earth. That is what our unity gives to us as Christians. First, Paul tells us last week to go and kill the sinful nature that sticks to us. And we do this by the power of God. Meaning if Jesus has already killed any sin that tempts you, if Jesus has already killed any sins in your life that you feel weak to, then you have the power of Christ who has already killed that sin to kill that sin that remains in you now. You are no longer a slave to sin, but you are set free in Christ. Amen? The Bible says that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So this is what you do, church, in the face of temptation. This is what you do when you feel weak, church. When those lustful desires show up, or when you feel that jealousy towards another person, or you feel bitter in your heart, or you feel impatient, parents, 
or you have that flash of anger while you're driving maybe, you declare by the power of Jesus in the position that you have in him that is not who I am anymore. I am a new creation in Christ and I will put to death what is earthly in me. Not by my power, but by the power of the finished work of Christ on the cross. That is what you have, church. Then you pray. And then you worship. You sing the doxology. And you live in the freedom of your unity with Jesus Christ. And in today's passage, Paul moves from killing our sin last week into our thriving in the community of Christ. If you are a Christian, then live as the body of Christ. This is what Paul is telling us to do. So verses 12 through 17, our text this morning, consists of instructions to believers to live according to that new heavenly throne room temple citizenship. In our section, we're going to read instructions for living in the church and how, and when I say living in the church or living as the body, I give you the freedom to think living as members of Calvary Redeeming Grace. Think of us in the reality of where we are even right now in this moment, church. Here are the four points that Paul will make which outline our sermon this morning. First, living as the body requires forgiveness. Living as the body requires forgiveness. Second, living as the body requires love. Third, living as the body requires peace. And fourth, living as the body requires edification. Now, here's a fun question for you. When I read through that list, living as the body requires forgiveness, love, peace, and edification, did you immediately think that these are things that I need to do? Because in one sense, it is true. (laughs) These are things that we need to do as we live as the body of Christ. But before you jump uh, into a task list of things that we need to see as uh, us checking them off, I want you to first see all of those things as things that are offered to you by God in Christ to empower you to live this way among the body of Christ. So living as the body requires forgiveness. Let's read chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So, you must, uh, so, so you also must forgive. Again, Paul gives us a list of five virtues that we must do something with. Last week, we were given two lists of five things that we were to kill. This week, we were given a list of five things that we were supposed to put on. But what does it even mean to put on something for us? Is this just some five-step process to, to, to holy living? Do we simply just strive to check the box of these five virtues and then we made it? I'm super holy now. I'm super, super humble. Come and test my meekness. 
That's not what Paul's getting at there. The idea of, of putting on is actually in the light of our position in Christ. Look at verses 9 and 10 from last week once more. Verses 9 and 10 say this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and that you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. If you're sensing this idea here of getting undressed and putting something new on, that is exactly right. That is what Paul is getting at. The putting off of the old self is the killing of our sinful nature by God's power. While at the same time, we are called by God to clothe ourselves with the new man. This spiritual analogy may lead you to think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We're told in Genesis chapter 3 that after Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and they made clothes for themselves out of fig leaves. And they clothed themselves of their shame and their nakedness. And God re-enters the garden. Where are you, my beloved? Where are you, my children? And he rebukes them for their sin. But we also see an act of amazing grace from God in this scene. In verse 21, we're told that God takes an animal skin, almost like a sacrificial animal, and he clothes Adam and Eve in something much better. Church, God is still providing for us a better garment. He says, remove the fig leaves that covered the old man, church, and put on the skin of the sacrificial lamb of God. Being clothed in Christ means to be holy as he is holy. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. And if you find it difficult to forgive your brothers and sisters, it is probably because you are lacking one or all of these Christ virtues in your life. Imagine not forgiving someone that God says, forgive them. Imagine doing that. Yet, we constantly do it. God says, forgive them, forgive them, as I have forgiven you. Forgive them, he says. I know they hurt you. I sympathize with your pain. I sympathize with your suffering. But it is better to forgive than to live in anger. You are forgiven, so go and forgive. This is the way of living in my body, the body of Christ. But forgiving them is letting them win, right? We don't want to forgive. We don't want to lose. No, says God. Forgiving others is winning. And God then flips the script on what we consider strength. Strength isn't, is, is, is giving ourselves, not receiving. Strength is found in prayer, on our knees, in fasting, not seeking our own good and, and overeating. Strength is found in serving, not being served. Strength is found in forgiving and not holding on to our grudges and anger and complaints against one another. So what are you called to forgive then? To what extent is God calling you to forgive one another? We are to forgive as God has forgiven us, and God has forgiven us everything. That is the bar of our forgiveness. What is the standard to live by? What a high standard. 
What a high standard that God has called us as Christians to live by. Oh, church, how I fall short of the glory of God. I am what is wrong with the church. But by the grace extended to us in Christ, may we put on the virtues of Christ and forgive as we are ourselves forgiven in Christ. Secondly, living as the body requires love. Living as the body requires love. Let's read verse 14 now. I'll take some tea first. And above all of these things, put on love, which binds together, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. <clears throat> all of these things is referring to the five Christ-like virtues above, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Again, there is this sense of us stressing ourselves with these things. Put on the compassionate cloak. Put on your, the socks of meekness. Put on the humility pants, right? We're supposed to clothe ourselves with this outward expression of Christ towards one another. And then Paul says, and above all of this, this outfit, put on love. Because love binds everything together in perfect harmony. The beautiful idea is that love is like the belt that goes over the cloak and holds everything in its place. Love is that, that final piece that ties together all of the, the, new, the new man, the new self uh, ensemble. But love doesn't just complete the pious wardrobe. It empowers and it perfects our forgiveness. Love perfects it. For what is forgiveness without love, church? What good is it to overlook offenses without also pursuing someone's good? That is not what God does in our forgiveness. No Christian can stand before our eternal judge and truth, truthfully say to him, God, you have forgiven me, but you didn't love me. And we are united in Christ. And we are to forgive and to love as he has forgiven and loves us. So let it not be uttered from the lips of a believer that God forgives and doesn't love us. For it is because of his perfect love that he sends his son into the world to forgive us. Love is not simply some romantic feeling, but it's the source of power to ignite and move the virtues that we receive in Christ. Richard Alling, a Puritan pastor, has a great quote on love. He says, Love is to a saint what malice is to Satan. Love is to a saint what malice is to a Satan. That which gives force to all their actings. And when we consider the love of God that has led him to do for his chosen ones, his holy and beloved ones, we see a window into the kind of love of what Paul is speaking of here. 1 John 3.16, we know it. It says, by this we know love, that Christ 
laid down his life for us, continues on, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, speaking of the church. We are to love even unto death. This is what living as members of the body is, church. This is a high calling. Who is worthy of it? Third, living as the body of Christ requires peace. Let's read verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body. And be thankful. We already know where there is no Christ, there is no peace. We have experienced this in our lives when we lived apart from God. Where there is no vertical peace with us and God, there will be no horizontal peace between man and woman. Look up at chapter uh, 1, verses 19 and 20 again, which states that the cost of peace was in fact the life of Christ. Verse 19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, to forgive all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you see forgiveness? Do you see love? Do you see peace all demonstrated on the cross? And we are then called to that same standard that Jesus demonstrates in verse 20. In Christ alone, we're told in Scripture, peace is found. For Isaiah calls Christ the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace. There will be no end. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. So here is the command, church, that we're given by Paul in the Scriptures. Let the Prince of Peace have dominion over your hearts because you stink at having dominion over your own hearts. Surrender wholly to the Prince of Peace, the Scriptures calls us. John Calvin's family crest was this thing exactly. It was a hand holding out a heart with these words, May I offer to you, O Lord, my heart promptly and sincerely. But a closer look at the text reveals that it's not just your heart, but it's your heart's plural. See, this is the third defining feature of the church collect. It's the controlling peace of Jesus in our community. The peace which surpasses all understanding and guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.7. And here, and it's here that the calling to live as Christians of the body is made plain to us. If you are a Christian, then live as the body of Christ. Turn to Romans chapter 12, please. The mystery of Christians joining in the body of Christ is awesome. Jesus doesn't just call us to associate with him. Jesus doesn't just stamp his approval on us. Our union with him is so much more. The imagery of a human body is used. Jesus is the head and believers are his body. 
Jesus as the head has dominion and rules over his body. And we are members of that body. We are instruments for his good use in his creation. This analogy, which is a true spiritual reality for every member of Christ, is seen throughout the whole New Testament. Colossians 3, Colossians 1, 8, 1 Corinthians 12, I mean, uh, Ephesians 4, uh, but we want, I want to look at Romans 12 here. Romans 12, 4 and 5. Read with me. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So it's because of our members, because of us being members of one body, that we are commanded to live at peace with one another. The biblical word peace that the Jewish believers of Colossae would have understood was shalom. Now shalom is such an important theme in the Bible and theme in the Old Testament that the Jewish people even still today use it as a greeting. And that idea of shalom and peace goes much further than saying, okay, peace is the presence of no conflict. Though it it, it means that too, it means something bigger than we don't have conflict. It means that we are fully reconciled and unified. The goal isn't just to not have conflict. The goal is that we are reconciled into one body in God. That is the goal of God with the church. We have the ability in Christ to live in shalom with one another. That is what Paul is telling us right now. Let the peace of Christ have dominion over you, your hearts. The same sins that Jesus killed and gave us power to kill are the sins that cause strife among us, church. Why kill sin? Kill sin because it keeps us from shalom. Killing sin is necessary for peace among among us. Because when we live without peace, the whole body suffers. You suffer when you don't forgive. You suffer when you don't forgive. And when you don't love. And when you don't allow the peace of Christ to control you. And lastly, living as the body requires edification. Verse 16. Turn back to Colossians 3, Colossians 3.16. Here we go. <clears throat> Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. I love this verse. I love this verse. Church, we are a group of people that are surrounding Christ. He is the center of all of it. And from him flows all love. From our center flows all grace, joy, peace, wisdom, knowledge, reconciliation. It is found in him. We are a community that is upheld and growing in Christ 
because of Christ, and for Christ. Jesus is the object of our worship. Jesus is the goal of our study. Jesus is the point of our sermons. We must let the word of Christ, the logos of Christ, dwell in us richly. When we gather on Sundays, we preach Christ in his work, our union with him, our communion with him. In our hospitality groups, we speak of him and we pray to him. When we do evangelism, we proclaim him boldly to the nations. Jesus is the treasure that we found in a field. We went home and said, I need that field because I want that treasure. I'm going to sell everything that I own so that I can go and purchase that field and possess that treasure for myself and let that truth dwell in you richly. Amen? And with his truth filling us, the whole scriptures that speak of him and his character and his pursuit of us, we are then conformed to his image. Look back again at verse 10 in chapter 3. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator, who is Christ. And the word of Christ leads us to our worship, teaching, and edification as the body. First, consider that the word of Christ dwelling in us leads us to teaching and admonishing. When I first felt the pull to go uh, into ministry, I decided that I wanted to go to a Bible institute, which was a one-year program of intense Bible study and training. We called it Bible Boot Camp. And it felt that way. But I loved it, and I soaked in that formal theological training and education. I loved it. I also loved the community of, of guys, friends that I, was, that I had while I was at that school. We spent a lot of time praying and fasting and reading and arguing and growing together by God's grace. And towards the end of the year, one of the older uh, saints among our, my, my friend group, uh, we found out he was receiving this like spiritual leadership award or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was akin to that. We were obviously excited for our friend, and during dinner that night, we, we all met up at our normal table, and we were just congratulating him. Great work, man. Like, that's awesome. You're the man. Like, you won that award or whatever that award was, right? I don't even remember anymore. And, and I mean, I, I won't forget, like, I, I, he just was like, yeah, thanks, guys, thanks. And then he just wanted to, like, to move on. Like, he didn't want to, like, he didn't want to, like, stick around that conversation. I understand why now. But there was a, among our friend group, the oldest of all of us was also the youngest Christian of us. He was only a Christian for a few months, but he was probably older than us by almost 10 years. And he was like harping on this award. Man, you deserve it. You deserve this, man. Of anyone on campus, you deserve it. He kept saying it. My buddy was like, man, like, no, like, I don't deserve it. Like, yeah, let's just stop. Let's just stop. And he wouldn't let it go. And finally, my friend, who, the, the, this award winner, with a, with a stern voice, 
which was uncharacteristic of him, looked him dead in the eye and says, you need to stop. You need to stop right now. You don't understand what you're saying. I don't deserve this award. You know what I deserve? I deserve hell. And we all just sort of sat back at lunch and were like, our dinner, and we were like, whoa. We knew, we knew he didn't mean to embarrass him. We, we, we know that he loved him. And he loved all of us. And it's because of his love for us that he taught us something really important in that moment and admonished us to not set our eyes on ourselves, but to set our eyes on the cross. That is the power of living in community as one body. With the word of Christ dwelling among us richly, God uses other members of the body to instruct us and to set us back on the correct paths. And I'm sure us here at this church, we all have similar stories to this, living in this community. But it is your responsibility, church. It's your responsibility to Christ in this community to love one another like this. It is not just your pastors who are called to teach and admonish the body. Though we are called to do this, we are all gifted by the same Spirit to serve and love one another in this way. So grow. Grow in order to love one another better. Grow to love me better as I grow to love and serve you better. And next, the word of Christ dwells richly in us through our praise of him. We are called and commanded to God, commanded by God to sing to God with thanksgiving in our hearts. And this is called our good. Now, the distinction between these three words here, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, is not fully clear among scholars. But what they all agree on is this, that our singing should be to Christ, about Christ, and based in the Scriptures. Psalms, the Old Testament songbook that we preached on this past summer, is about Jesus. If that wasn't clear this past summer, you need to drink coffee before church. We sing psalms at our church, and we sing songs that are written based on psalms, and we sing spiritual songs that are, that are based on other texts of scriptures. And that is the point of, that Paul is trying to make here. Having the word of Christ dwell richly in us, instructing us even in our singing. And that means that when we gather on Sunday morning, church, our singing is not just an add-on to our worship service, but it is God's command to us to be admonished and taught and built up in Christ through his word. That's why we take singing so seriously here at this church and the songs we pick. You may have wondered, why don't they sing those songs that I hear that are really popular? Well, probably because we are not thoroughly convinced that they are bathed in Scripture. We want to serve you the best that we can offer you, which is the Word of Christ. And when we sing these psalms, and some of us don't like it, I lead worship and I see that and I, and I understand that you feel that way. But when we do sing and we do obey that command to sing together, we are joining a mighty chorus of saints that have went before us. 
we join with Moses who sang of God's deliverance in Deuteronomy 32. We join with David who penned the majority of the songs. We join with the Hebrew worshipers who ascended the Temple Mount singing Psalms 120 through 133. We join with Jesus who grew up as a man singing these same psalms. We join the first generation of the church when we sing Christ's hymn, which Paul probably penned in Philippians 2. We join Augustine, we join Martin Luther, we join John Owen, and we join one another. And in our ending, verse 17, Paul writes, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We, the church, are to do everything in the name of Jesus. And doing things in the name of Jesus means more than just being an ambassador of Jesus, how I often hear it. G.K. Beale writes that the phrase, in the name of the Lord, is used 18 times in the Greek Old Testament, and it's always linked to the sovereign presence of God. Always. Meaning, in the Old Testament, when someone did something in the name of Yahweh, or the name of the Lord, he was saying that in this moment, as I speak or act, the, so- the sovereignty and the presence of God is with me in this action or my speaking. This is the kind of thing that Paul is talking about. We live and move and have our being not just in a, uh, an unknown God, but as believers, we have our being and we move and have our power in Jesus Christ. Amen? The calling of living in the church as the body of Christ seems impossibly high. That's what I took from this. It requires forgiveness as God has forgiven. I'm out already. It requires love as God has loved, seeking peace as Christ brings peace, and the edification through his perfect word. Who is qualified to be a member of such a community? Because in our hearts, we all desire to be accepted into a community like that. Who wouldn't want to be a part of a community that was always forgiving, always building us up, always encouraging us? Who wouldn't want that? But what is amazing, church, is that it's not your excellence that causes you to be qualified for this church. But it's the excellence of Jesus Christ himself. Our God, church, our God, who is a God of forgiveness. He is a God of love. He is a God of perfect peace and perfect truth. Calls you, names you, says of you that you are my chosen ones. Holy and beloved. Paul needs to remind us of this throughout this text. He says that, indeed, you were called, which is another word for elected. You were called into one body. You weren't qualified for this. 
but by my power and my grace and my forgiveness and my love and my peace, I have called you into this. There is a choosing of us by God to redeem you for his glory. And the call from God this morning is this. If you are a Christian, chosen, purchased, forgiven, loved, brought to peace, built up in Christ, in God, then live as the body of Christ. Amen? That is what Paul is calling us to this morning. And as impossibly high as living in this community sounds, God has equipped us in himself to live this out, everyone. We are to do this in the name, the sovereign presence of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This community right here, church, as I close, the people that are sitting next to you, behind you, in front of you, is an undeserved gift of God's grace to you. Because Christ, our Lord and Savior, is working these things out among us as we speak. You are holy. I'm not telling you that. God is telling you that. You are holy. You are beloved by God. Let's pray. Lord, we, we, what can we do? What can we say but to just stand here in all of your goodness and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ? We thank you for this deep and wonderful truth, this, this eternity and life-changing reality of our union that you have called us your chosen ones. You have called us holy and beloved and called us to your body, whom Jesus is our head. May we take it seriously to live as the body of Christ. And may we rejoice in this gift of being called into the body. There is nothing greater to be called to. We pray in Christ's name.